Holy Spirit, thank you for the gift of the meal that we've shared here tonight and for the servants who lovingly prepared it for us. Thanks for the joy of being gathered in this room, for the blustering wind outside, and for the warmth of this fire. And thank you, Lord, that you kindle the fire which is yourself in our hearts um, by the outpouring of your Spirit. Lead us now as we listen and discuss the gift of your word. Uh, help us to hear you speaking to us in the book of Genesis. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This is from Genesis 28. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God and this stone which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. So just as a little bit of recap here and context, what's happened just previously uh, in chapter 27 and sort of at the beginning of chapter 28 is that Jacob and his mother, Rebekah, have successfully deceived both Esau and Jacob's father, Isaac, into giving Jacob... The, the blessing that Isaac had intended to give to Esau. I think I got all those names right. And having conspired together, Rebekah and Jacob, to, to accomplish this subterfuge, really quickly, Rebekah's like, you're going to have to leave town because Esau wants to murder you. So toward the end of chapter 27, Rebekah says to Jacob, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. And she goes on to say, you should flee to my brother Laban in Haran until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him. <clears throat> so that's what Jacob's doing as we pick up about halfway through chapter 28 tonight. He's fleeing. He's on his way to Haran. Uh, so we read uh, in verse 10. And then as we move on to verse 11, we read, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. So far as we know at this point in the story, this place, which, by the way, this place is almost prominent enough that it's like a character in, in this chunk of 
uh, verses. I think it's like six or seven times that phrase, this place, comes up in this passage. But so far as we know, at this point in the story, this place where Jacob has come to is a nameless place. This place is as good as any other place for a fugitive to spend the night. And Jacob is stopping there not because of any known history or virtue or feature of that place, but simply, the passage says, because the sun had set. Moving on to the latter half of verse 11, we read, taking one of the stones of that place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. Taking one of the stones of that place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. I don't know about you, but to me, this is an oddly absorbing detail in the story. There's something intriguing uh, and absorbing about this rock. For one, it's maybe not what you would choose to do to lay your head down on a rock in a place. But for whatever reason, you know, Jacob maybe felt like his, his spinal alignment was better if he at least had something to put his head on. So this is kind of an oddly absorbing detail. It conveys firstly just how uncomfortable a journey or an adventure really is. I think it's kind of easy to be romantic about the idea of a journey or about the idea of an adventure. I mean, for that matter, it's pretty easy to forget how crappy camping is. Uh, and I say that as a person that I've done a good bit of camping in my life. Like I've, I've spent a decent amount of money on like ultralight gear to go backpacking uh, in, in the mountains and stuff like that. Like every year, usually at least once, I will go to some cold and windy place and, and spend several nights camping by my truck so that I can hunt deer. But uh, honestly, camping kind of sucks. I don't know if you guys have done it recently, but like if you have, I bet you didn't sleep that great. And in fact, it probably took about five minutes to be like, yeah, this is, I mean, maybe there's a good reason for me to be doing this, but it's not comfortable, if anything else. So that rock, I think, conveys that, how uncomfortable the journey that Jacob is on really is. But again, also, that rock that Jacob is sleeping on, it's just one of the stones of that place. It is, at least it was, as anonymous as all the other rocks that were there in this anonymous place. And yet, as unimportant as this rock seems, all of a sudden when Jacob shows up, it's singled out. It's chosen out of the vast anonymity of the wider landscape as the uncomfortable but necessary pillow of this descendant of Abraham named Jacob. Verse 11 ends with Jacob laying down his head on the rock to sleep, and the very next verse begins, and he dreamed. And my immediate response to that is just amazement that he could have slept at all, much less that he slept soundly enough to have like vivid dreams. But however much he may have struggled to fall asleep, narratively, the dream begins, it seems, at the moment his head touches the rock. It's almost as if the rock itself is the material through which the dream is conducted. We read in verse 11, we get, we get to, hear, to see some of the content of what he dreamed. We read a ladder from earth to heaven, about a ladder from earth to heaven and angels going up and down the ladder. So in just simple terms, what, what that's all about, pretty clearly, this is a picture or a vision of commerce, of communion between earth and heaven. Uh, heaven is open and there's, there's communion, there's commerce between where we are and where God is. For me, I don't know about you, about how you visualize this in your head, but for me, I actually almost imagine, and the story doesn't say this, but for me, this is the way I see it in my mind, that ladder actually resting on either that rock, like not just the earth, but that rock, or maybe even like Jacob's head. So moving on to verse 13, and behold, the Lord stood above it, above the ladder, and said, I am the Lord. And then what God says next 
begins to clarify the significance of that rock on which Jacob's dreaming head rests. God says, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Moving on to verse 14, your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. And you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. As we listen to the Lord speaking to Jacob from within his dream, we begin to realize that this rock in this place is a kind of symbolic epicenter. It's a sign of God's promise of the way that Abraham's offspring are going to emanate outward, multiplying and growing. It is as if this rock is thrown into the ocean of time, and we see waves rippling outward on the surface of the water until finally all the inhabitants of the earth will be encompassed by those rings, encompassed by God's blessing. Amazingly, that cosmic promise, a promise universal in scope, millennia long in its completion, is somehow concentrated at this particular site, That story is going to emanate out from this place, this rock, and this dude that's sleeping on it. From the dizzying vastness and universality of verse 14, God moves on in verse 15 to make a promise to Jacob that is a little bit more contracted and personal. He says, Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. To summarize God's promise to Jacob in verse verse 15, it's a promise of presence. It's an assurance of constant withness. It's a promise of presence. More subtly, it's a promise that God's presence is going to persist for Jacob over the course of a journey. There's a clue that a journey is exactly what's in store for Jacob in the words, I will bring you back to this land, which suggests that Jacob is transient. Uh, This place where he is right now is for right now just one stop along the way. As we move on to verse 16, Jacob wakes up and exclaims, God is here. God is in this place, and I did not know it. The tense of that last part, I did not know it, is important. It points up the contrast between the fact of God's presence that preceded Jacob's presence in this place, that God is already there before Jacob wakes up to the fact that he's there. A veil has been parted. For the moment, Jacob has been made viscerally and effortlessly aware of something about the presence of God that already was the case. He's just getting clued into it all of a sudden. The problem with the presence of God, this verse helps us to remember, the problem with the presence of God, which is not always obvious to us, is is a problem of human perception. It's not that God is not here or there, but that we, as Jacob, don't know it a lot of the time. In some ways, the problem isn't that God isn't here, but that often we aren't here are not at least here enough to be awake to the Lord's presence. Moving on to verse 17, Jacob continues to express his amazement. How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. I almost at this point in my reading start to be like, you're kind of 
almost missing the point here a little bit. Like you're making a little bit too big of a deal out of the place instead of the one who's meeting you here. And there may be a legitimate critique to make of Jacob for being overly focused on the place rather than on God. But I think a more charitable reading, uh, with a more charitable reading, we could recognize in this moment an intrinsically human hunger and need to be somewhere with God. Not just to have God, but to have to be somewhere with God. We are placed creatures. Like God made us embodied which means that there isn't anywhere, any way for us to be with God except to be somewhere with God. It turns out we need, to be, we need somewhere. We need some specific sites that have become recognizable to us as entry points, as gateways into the presence of God, places where reliably we can expect to meet God there. In verse 18, the first thing Jacob does the next morning is set the stone up as, I think this translation has it as a, a pillar. Um, I like the word memorial a little bit better and some other translations uh, because it's really clear that that's what this actually functions as for him. So he sets this stone up <clears throat> as a memorial and he anoints it with oil. Jacob at this point has made a concrete change in the landscape. This part of the world is now marked as a place where a human being has communed with God. The stone becomes a marker, not only in space, but also in time, insofar as the stone is a site of memory. It looks back to something that God did in this place, and it's also a site from which Jacob and his descendants can look forward to the day when the promise God made in that place is going to be fulfilled. In verse 19, Jacob renames the place Bethel, which is kind of a, a way of reinforcing uh, his earlier exclamation, Bethel means house of God. In the first part of verse 20, we read, then Jacob made a vow. He's making a vow to God. <clears throat> but it's worth noting that when Jacob begins to articulate his vow to God, the first word out of his mouth is the word if. If. You rightly might expect to, to, be, to be the beginning of an if-then kind of statement which is in fact the case. So in verse 20, he, he starts off by saying if, and then we get the, the then in verse 21. And between there, kind of sandwiched between that if and that then, is a list of conditions of Jacob's vow. So he's vowing that God is going to be his God, that he is going to be devoted to this God, and um, that he's going to offer like a tenth of everything that he has, and that this stone is going to be the the the, the, the gateway the house of the house of God. But all of that is preceded by if, by these conditions. His phrasing seems to admit openly that he's not certain that God is going to keep his word. On the one hand, we might criticize Jacob for what could probably be accurately described as doubt or distrust of God. I think that's probably accurate. But on the other hand, I think we can relate to this to the sense that any God worthy of worship and devotion, much less worthy of sacrifice and trust, any God of that sort needs to deliver on his promises. It's fair to say for us too, that unless God delivers on his promises, there's no reason for him to be our God. Moreover, most of what Jacob says when he lists his ifs, his conditions, they're just restatements of what God has already promised. So there's basically three ifs, there's three conditions, and I'll give you, I'll give you them in, a, in an alliter, alliterative form. They are, they are presence, 
provision and peace. Or maybe a little bit more expansively, presence, provision, and a, and a peaceful return. So uh, as for presence, we, at the beginning of verse 20, if God will be with me, that's pretty straightforwardly about God's presence. Uh, the provision comes in, in what follows and will keep me in this way that I go. This activity of keeping uh, is important to the grammar of, of the Christian life. It's interestingly language that shows up in the marriage vows, actually, uh, in the marriage liturgy. And it shows up several places in scripture. And it means essentially what, what I mean when I say that we keep a flock of hens in our backyard. Um, we care for the life of those chickens, supplying them what they need to live. Jacob is saying, if the Lord will keep me in this way that I go. And so in that sense, he's talking about provision, which becomes even more clear as the verse continues, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear. So those are the first two, presence and provision. And so far, Jacob's conditions for his vow, Jacob's ifs, are just affirmations of God's promises. But at the beginning of verse 21, Jacob introduces a third condition that is subtly but significantly different than the promises that God has already made him. So in verse 21, we read, so that I come again to my father's house in peace. Just those words, so that, already really place a lot of emphasis on that third thing. What those words mean, so that, means that all that stuff that Jacob has affirmed that God has promised, he wants to see it conformed to what's going to come after the so that. He wants it not just to happen, but to happen in a way that leads to so that he comes to his father's house in peace. There's a slight deviance here, and Jacob is making peace a condition of his devotion to God. It's not hard to infer what he means when he says peace, nor is it hard to understand why Jacob's vision of peace would be desirable. Peace means going back to the way things were. It means a return to a familiar place, a return to a known people. It means cashing in on the blessing and inheritance that Jacob has robbed from his brother and twisted by deception from his father. Peace means getting to escape the consequences of those deceptions and manipulations in his past. It means not getting murdered by Esau. But the Lord has not actually promised Jacob either a return to his father's house nor has he promised him peace, at least not explicitly and certainly not peace as Jacob is imagining it. As understandable as Jacob's desire for peace is, I think it's fair to say that in the way that Jacob is imagining peace, that it essentially functions as an idol. So what this footnote, this, these conditions, and especially that last condition, that last of the three ifs, reveals in the broadest terms, is a very real imperfection and incompletion in Jacob's response to God. He gets a lot right. He is responding to God in ways that accurately recognize how near God is to him, and he's rightly awed by God, and yet we can see a really conspicuous imperfection and incompletion in his response to God. This reveals that Jacob is not all the way converted we might say, from his former way of life. He gets, like I said, a great deal right, but he still is responding to God slantwise. He still seems to be laboring under the delusion that he is in control of his life and his future, the delusion that he can set the terms of his relationship with God. He has begun to know his own dire need, 
here at the outset of his journey, here on the threshold of his exile. But he is not yet desperate, at least not in the way he's eventually going to be desperate after God has worn him down a good bit more. The chessboard of his life is not as wide open as it was before. But so far as Jacob can tell, he still has plenty of options in front of him. If it turns out that this God of his fathers delivers on his promises, then all the better. That's an exciting prospect to Jacob. But at this point, God is by no means absolutely necessary for Jacob's understanding of his future. What about you? What's on the list of ifs in your life? What are the conditions you've placed on your devotion to God, whether explicitly or the, the, the sort of conditions that may just be lurking around tacitly in your soul? In what ways are you still waiting to see whether or not God delivers on his promises? What are the things that you take for granted about your future, but that maybe God doesn't take for granted about your future? The things that you take for granted about your future, but if it turns out that God fails to deliver them, then in all honesty, the deal might actually be off between you and God. Is it a spouse not having to be alone the rest of your life? Is it a career of a particular kind? Is it a certain level of financial security? Is it getting to shoot a giant buck with your bow? Is it getting, is it getting to go to grad school where you want to go to grad school and when you want to go to grad school? Is it having kids, getting your book published, being recognized, appreciated, and rewarded in a manner that's proportionate to your ability and your effort, what possible conditions have you placed on your devotion to God that if those things don't pan out, you may not continue to follow God in the way? As we begin to ruminate on those questions, I want to direct our attention back to Jacob's exclamation in verse 16. Surely the Lord is in this place, uh, in this place. But why is it that it's that place that Jacob finds God? Why not back at home and in that, uh, in that time, in that place that he has now left behind? Why does, it, it, why does it happen that Jacob meets God while he's camping on the outskirts of an unknown city, effectively in the wilderness, while sleeping on a rock amid the shivering discomfort of exile? Is it a coincidence that that is where Jacob really begins personally to know God? Is it by accident that a random rock in the middle of nowhere turns out for Jacob to be the gate to heaven? I ask this question because I think we are all vastly more attached to comfort and security than we realize we are most of the time. And because of those attachments to comfort and security, we have a strong tendency to deceive ourselves into thinking that we can have God and also have everything else that we want to. Um, a couple days ago, when I was actually outlining all the passages for this quarter, um, I was at a coffee shop I don't normally go to in Ruston, and I happened to overhear a conversation with a group of people that, that, I'm, that is the board of, a, of, a different, of another campus ministry. I'm, I'm just going to call it another campus ministry. That's basically what it is here in Ruston. I won't name which one it was because I'm going to make fun of these people a little bit. <laughs> but I kind of knew who they were. But conveniently, they didn't really know who I was. And I continued to read the Bible, but I also did a little bit of eavesdrop. And so this is a meeting that is ostensibly about 
campus ministry, but actually it was just a perfect specimen of any other meeting of upper crust Ruston people that you would be liable to overhear any other day at whatever coffee shop in Ruston. For those of you that, that don't, like, they didn't grow up here or that are not, you know, I don't know. I, I was totally oblivious to this kind of stuff when I was a college student at Tech. Like, Ruston is a place that definitely has a, a clear upper crust. There is such a thing as being the upper crust in Ruston, okay? And this meeting was almost like a caricature of, uh, of that in Ruston. It was just this group of wealthy people, a circle of insiders. By the way, it's not normal for campus ministers to be wealthy, but this one does happen to be wealthy. She's married into that situation. So this is a circle of insiders who couldn't help talking about the fact that they are insiders. It was almost like they don't have anything else to talk about, but how great it is to be on the inside club of Ruston. They found ways to mention to each other that they, that they live in Squire Creek, which if you don't know, is, is like the, the wealthiest gated neighborhood in Ruston. They chuckled together as one person joked about some sort of clever real estate deal she had struck up with her husband, which by the way, who does that? Who strikes up real estate deals with their husband? Um, some, kind of, some kind of clever real estate deal she had struck up with her husband that involved her getting a great many large and high quality diamonds and a new piece of jewelry. Later in the meeting, this group of people conspired together to solve the problem of how a rich Rustin lady could donate a vehicle she doesn't want anymore, which of course, was a white Suburban so that she could get a brand new white Suburban, but also managed to get the greatest possible tax benefit by donating her old one to the campus ministry. At one point, the meeting was interrupted by yet another campus minister who sauntered over to the table to yuck it up with exactly the kind of canned small talk and cheesy Christian jokes that you would expect. That, by the way, is why that guy will always be more successful than me is because he does stuff like that. Uh, but anyway, very briefly, toward, meanwhile, I'm like just trying to stay, stay hidden over here. Very briefly, toward the end of this little soiree, these board members mentioned small group ministry with college students, and they said a hurried prayer. So here's why I'm telling you this story. <clears throat> the upshot is this, that we American Christians, not just the, the upper crust of Ruston, but we American Christians have done an incredibly complete job of convincing ourselves that, there's, that we can have Jesus seamlessly with anything else that we want. And that Jesus fits in a way that just, I mean, there's no friction at all between following Jesus and whatever any ordinary, wealth-seeking seeking pagan would go after. Does that make sense? Like, Jesus just is so seamlessly... Uh, interwoven into that conversation. So there's this assumption that Squire Creek, that the gated community, is as good a place, that's what we're talking about here tonight, that it's as good a place to encounter Jesus as any other. So this is a vision of relationship with God, like I said, that fits seamlessly into a typically American, and in this case, a specifically North Louisianian vision of the good life. Now, I am not at all and we'll never be anywhere near the insider circle of the upper crust of Ruston. And I won't deny that it is tempting to think that I'm pretty different than the folks at that table in that coffee shop. But the truth is that I have just as big an appetite for comfort and security as all those people do. I have just as big an appetite for comfort and security as those people do. My default to live is, is, is to live as if I can have my comfort and my relationship with God too. And whenever that turns out not to be the case, 
I, I act surprised as if something has gone wrong. True, for me, the dream isn't a manicured lawn in Squire Creek. It's 2,000 acres of prime hunting land in southern Iowa and enough money in the bank that I don't have to worry about me or my grandkids' needs being met. And it probably doesn't make that much difference that that's a pipe dream for me in a way that it's maybe not a pipe dream for some of the upper crust of Ruston. That's still what I would want. That's the direction my appetites are ordered toward, which make me just as susceptible to this deception as anyone else. All of us are liable to be idolaters of peace, of peace in the way that, that Jacob is imagining it in this passage. All of us are liable to try to return home, to pursue comfort, and to try to be at home in this world rather than persisting in our journey, on our journey with God. The evidence of our, of our idolatry of peace, peace in scare quotes here, is usually a lot more subtle either than either the white suburban or the thousands of acres in Iowa. The evidence of our idolatry of peace usually is just that we are affronted by how frequently following Jesus gets in the way of our pursuit of comfort and certainty and security. It's that we habitually take it for granted that even a moderate degree of discomfort or uncertainty, and maybe even uncertainty more than discomfort, but that even a modern degree of discomfort and uncertainty constitutes a good enough reason not to do a thing that pretty obviously is the kind of thing God does, in fact, want us to do. So it's not a coincidence. This is a long, a long way around to say it's not a coincidence that it's on a rock in the middle of nowhere that Jacob meets God in a place of discomfort and amid great vulnerability and need. Because Christian discipleship is uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to follow Jesus. In fact, following Jesus can be downright risky, perilous, and fraught with all kinds of real deprivation and uncertainty. In the Bible, it's usually not rich people, not folks that have everything they need and who think they've got nothing to worry about, who get to have dreams like the one Jacob has in Genesis 28. It's usually not the folks in Squire Creek who are the first to hear news about the birth of the Messiah. Instead, it's a bunch of poor shepherds doing, guess what, camping out in fields. Where, think about this for a minute, where on the landscape of the narrative of Scripture, where in the Bible do people usually find Jesus? It's rarely in a, a peaceful situation. It's usually not amid the, trapp the trappings of comfort or security. Instead, foxes have holes, Jesus says, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, not even on a rock. If I'm right, that Christian discipleship just is uncomfortable. If it's true that following Jesus means embracing uncertainty and loosening our grip on economic security, if it's so uncomfortable and uncertain to journey with Jesus, then it's fair to ask, why does anybody do it in the first place? I've asked myself that with some frequency, actually. To cut to the chase, they do it because even though the journey of Christian discipleship isn't necessarily a journey that leads to comfort, it is a journey where God is persistently with us. It's because even though following Jesus means giving up on ever being all the way at home in this world, we disciples do come to be at home in God himself, which turns out to be the only true place of rest and the only true source of peace that is available to any human being. People still go along with Jesus because our home is God. 
God who is already unrelentingly with us along this journey. So to move toward a close here. In Jacob's dream, God isn't just making Jacob a promise. God is offering Jacob an alternative way of life from the way that he's been living up to that point. God himself is what God promises to Jacob. I will be with you, he says. I will never leave you, he says, over and over and over again. With such promises, God is implicitly inviting Jacob to make his journey through life in a different way than he was journeying before. Sorry. To make his journey in a manner that, re- that recognizes the fact that ultimately there is no peaceful home to be found any place on earth. There's no place of rest on earth except in God himself. So that's, that's the invitation God is making to Jacob. But as we already recognized earlier, Jacob responds to God slantwise or sort of halfway. He wants God, but he also wants his childish idol of peace. And that's about as full of a response to God as Jacob is capable of at that point in his journey, which is actually pretty good news. It's good news because God is going to keep pursuing Jacob. It's good news because God's promise, I will not leave you, means that Jacob doesn't have to get it all the way right the very first time. God comes to us amid the wreck and the mess that we've made of things. He comes to us along the trajectory of our own self-caused exile and invites us on a better journey. And even when we don't know how to respond to God in any way other than imperfectly and incompletely, God keeps on coming to us. He stays with us. In the Gospels, at one of the most climactic junctures of their journey with Jesus, the Last Supper, Jesus tells the apostles, you will all fall away. All you jokers are going to fall away. Jesus fully comprehends the flimsiness of the disciples' commitments. He foresees their failures, their departure from the journey of discipleship in ways that they cannot even imagine. But he also sees into the disciples' future. He sees beyond their failure and their weakness. Jesus sees sees beyond his own lonely death on the cross, which is what their failure is going to cause. Like, not the death, but the fact that he's going to be alone when he dies. And what he sees for the disciples is his own persistent presence with them, refusing to give up on them. You will all fall away, but after I am raised up, Jesus says, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. With these words, Jesus reiterates to the disciples and to us God's promise to Jacob, I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you.